Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me the author of a fascinating and gorgeous new book titled The Globe Makers, The Curious Story of an Ancient Craft, just published in 2023 from Bloomsbury. I have with me Peter Bellerby, who is a globe maker um, of very, very cool globes, and this book is all about how he came to be a globe maker, and a bit about how it's going. So, Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, But before we dive into the book's contents itself, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write a book? Yeah, so um, my name is Peter Bellaby, and I um, I set up this well, it's kind of going things in, in slightly the odd way around, but I set up a company um, in 2010, um, just after I um, had decided rather stupidly to try and make my father a globe for his 80th birthday. And it was such a wonderful process. The the two years of the trial and error and all the fantastic coincidences that happened and the meetings with people that happened that I always wanted to write some sort of a book, some sort of a pamphlet Lisa, to go with all our, our globes. Just when we, we send our globes out, um, we ship all around the world. And so um, I'm, I'm always um, embarrassed by the fact that we send this little um, kind of booklet and, and it used to be just a postcard with a globe that might have cost thousands of pounds. And so I always wanted to write something that, that told the whole story of how this all happened. And rather wonderfully, an agent a couple of years ago got in touch with me and said, I'd love you to write a book. And I, I just replied, I would love to write a book. And it's gone from there. And it's been an amazing collaboration between both, both me writing the narrative and, and my team helping to illustrate the book, uh, as well as we have been photographed so many times over the years. We've got a very aesthetic studio. And so we have photographers come in and take photos. So we, we've included a lot of those in the book as well. Was that short? <laughs> no, that was brilliant. Um, thank you for the introduction. And I think it's very, um, I'm, I'm so glad you highlighted right at the beginning just how aesthetic the book is, right? How photographs and the illustrations, um, it really is quite a gorgeous book as well yeah, as being. It, that was really important for us that it has mm. to represent the company. Mm-hmm. Well, it does um, definitely have a cool story as well as visually being pretty spectacular. Um, so on the story side, you just briefly mentioned kind of the initial impetus for this, but it is worth going into a bit more detail. Why did you decide to create your own globe? So like everyone around the world who buys their father present for his birthday, I've struggled over the years. I bought the usual thing, um, alcohol, um, shirts, ties. One year I even bought cigars for him, the finest Cuban cigars. Um, he obviously um, hasn't smoked since his 20s. So um, 
didn't take take that very kindly. So I thought for his upcoming 80th birthday, I would make a globe for him. I thought it'd be a, a really fun thing to make. Sorry, I'll take that all back. I thought I'd buy him a globe. Um, so I then I then went around um, Stanford's looking for a globe, um, which is a big store in central London and, and other places, Harrods. And I looked around auction houses and I realized there was nothing that I I was drawn to or that was the the modern ones tend to be relatively um relatively simple in, in their design and the antique ones every time you spin them another peaceful so therefore I came to the um, logical conclusion uh, or not that I should make my um, father um, a globe and so I set about um, making a globe. It was 2008. I had just finished um, a, doing some um, some houses up and I was about to buy another house. Um, I was doing a little bit of property developing and 2008 was possibly the worst time in the world to um, get involved in buying a new house. So I thought I, I would give it a go to try and make one for my dad and gave myself three months and a few thousand pounds and um, hey presto two years later and first the 200,000 pounds I had a glow. That sounds sort of nice and straightforward and easy told like that um, which of course you detail in the book wasn't quite so straightforward so can you kind of start us off at the beginning what was the initial list of tasks and priorities you had for right I'm going to build a globe here's what I think I need to do and then how well did that match up to the actual process? What was missing from that initial list? Well, so, so obviously, I'm um, sorry, I was using um, slightly stupid English sarcasm there. The, so I gave myself three months and a few thousand pounds and it literally took me two years and 200,000 pounds. So it went way off the scale. So what? I guess at the beginning, I my list um, was was just the main construction um, things. So I needed to make a sphere. Um, didn't seem too difficult. I needed to learn how to put the the what are called gauze onto onto a sphere, and obviously that had been done amazingly well in the 17th and 18th centuries. So with modern materials, modern processes, there's no reason why I couldn't do that. I was pretty confident. With my hands when I did property developing, I often did a lot of the tasks myself, so I wasn't faced by that, you know, which was a bit silly. But and so uh, I had the other processes. I had to find um, a meridian to to circle around the globe, and I had to find a woodworker who would help me make the wooden stands. What I was missing from all of that was um, the fact that when well, I suppose the reason it was things were missing is I had no idea until three or four months in that I was going to turn this into a company. So I didn't even think that once I had turned it into a company, I had to have a PR and marketing strategy. I had to um, to had to realize that I, I might be doing interviews. I might be doing photo shoots. I had to be um, engaged in that and, and learn how to smile. Um, I had to learn how to if we were going to market into stores, I had to learn how to get into stores. It, it's impossible finding buyers in stores. So it was all the kind of commercial side of things. Because I didn't plan this as a business, I just planned it to begin with to make 
um, a couple of globes. And so I, I was missing a whole host of um, commercial things that, that you would have in any normal sort of business plan. No, that, that makes sense, especially as you said, you weren't trying to make a business um, to begin with. Getting in then to the process of actually making the globe, um, before we get to the map bit, there's of course the sphere it has to go on. How difficult is it actually to make a sphere that one can then do other things with? It's there are there are many ways to skin a cat. I wanted to make sure that I did this in the kind of most handmade way. So you can um, get fiberglass. Uh, sorry, you can. I was using plaster Paris at the beginning, but we now use fiberglass. But neither one of them you can get spun and cast into a sphere. But that that just takes away any romanticism of the process. So my um, the way I did it at the beginning was was just to get two hemispheres and then try and um, join them together. And both the process of making hemispheres with plaster Paris and the process of extracting the hemisphere from the mold, the, the finding a mold that is half decent is nigh on impossible. And then trying to cut the edges that you've created um, at the top of each hemisphere and then join them together and then obviously balance the a globe um, after you've done all this process. Those are all wonderfully interesting things. Engineering challenges, which to be honest, I I loved every bit of it. That's in a sense, that's why I I did this. I thought there might be a few little engineering challenges. I didn't realize that when you are dealing with spheres and circles, um, you can you can almost multiply um, any error by a factor of pi. You know, it just it just seems that way. Um, you if every time something goes wrong, it's like three point one four one five nine six two whatever times wrong. It's just everything is is um, is exacerbated by the fact um, you are dealing with a sphere. There, there really is a very good reason why, up until very recently, the the vast majority of all buildings around the world have been built with straight sides. It's just um, it's so much simpler. This is something that, as I was reading the book, um, I kept sort of imagining like not quite spherical balls like rolling around the studio and just sort of escaping you at every turn and so i wasn't particularly surprised having got to that point to um kind of read about the enormous number of tools and apparatuses needed to make this actually happen i was surprised though that you've had to create a bunch of them um from scratch why and can you introduce us to some of them yeah it's it's things like compasses we we have to make gigantic compasses and the thing the thing that's always a challenge uh, with a compass is the fact that normally when you're on a flat piece of paper they kind of work but as you put more pressure on them they they tend to unless they've got a they're very rigid they tend to slightly drift away from the center um, as you're spinning them around and certainly as the angle increases that that gets worse well, obviously, we're we're dealing with a sphere, so you're dealing with very acute angles at, at some stage. So we've had to make gigantic, um, gigantic compasses, uh, which often are just arches of metal, which have a point, um, which um, neatly goes into 
uh, either pole, and then um, we attach a pencil to the the um, point where we want to add the kind of um, the line that goes around um, the globe. So, well, prior to putting on a gore, we are marking the globe up where the latitude lines are to give us a, a guide. So that's one thing. But but we we have so many jigs here. You you can imagine. Most canvases that you paint on are relatively simple. It's a flat canvas. It can either go on the floor or it can go on the wall. So if, for instance, you want to varnish a flat canvas, it's easy. You start at one end and you stop at the other end. If you want to varnish a globe, you have to um, have a jig that it goes in so none of it touches um, where what it would normally be sitting in. Usually we have all these sort of round objects around the studio that the globes get put in they have a um, tendency to roll away so um, we um, we have jigs so that the, um, the globes can be supported with a rod through the axe and so that we can do these um, processes uh, whereby um, um, so that we can add a layer of varnish um, all in one without without having to stop and we have with the workshop we have I mean, 50 jigs. Every, every single table we make, every single new design, we have to make jigs to make it work because it's there just isn't something built. Even the kind of um, the basic circular surround that um, goes around a, um, a globe, you know, a traditional stand, um, you'd have to see those images of those either in the book or online. Um, that is something that no other manufacturer makes. It's just not... Who, who makes a, a piece of wood that has a huge hole in the center? So um, we we've had to learn processes, but we've also had to build um, jigs and, and arrangements in order to to make those work. Huge amount of work, um, and we're not even done with the globe creation bit. Uh, so moving on from the creation of the sphere to the actual putting the maps on it. Where do you get your maps from and why has this been unexpectedly complicated? So I licensed our map from um, just a, a, a company that has a, a great, um, uh, I draw a great online collection of maps in vector form. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of people have just not bothered to update maps because for whatever reason, I don't know. It's just, I think they had the same lethargy that globe making had for most of the last half of the 20th century, where people would be so bad at making globes, they would put it, they, you would lose continents or countries at times because the pieces of paper would just um, overlap far too far. And so when I got the map originally, I basically stripped it completely back. And, and started started from scratch. Um, that was the only way to do it. Um, and it's um, it's kind of um, it's been complicated in this in sense. And perhaps this is kind of slightly leading on to the next question, um, or a, a later question is the fact that um, we can't just use one map, which makes your life inevitably much more difficult. Um, I suppose we can go to that now, actually. Uh, why don't you use just one map? Why is 
what what are some of the existing complexities uh, with maps? Even if everything is updated, um, there's still a bunch of problems. Yeah, want to tell so us about this? Yeah, politically speaking, that's where that's where the issue is. It is um, we we can't send a globe to China with Taiwan marked. We can't send a globe to a number of Middle Eastern countries with Israel marked. We um, and and we. We just don't. Um, in, in the Chinese case, we will mark Taiwan as Chinese Taipei. Um, and we, we actually have to tell our customers that they, they need to have it marked like that. They don't, they sometimes imagine that, well, actually, all the Chinese customers who we've spoken to, they don't really see an issue with it being marked as Taiwan. In India, I can go to prison for six months if I send a globe to India with the wrong border marks between India and Pakistan. So it's, it's, there are a lot of factors to deal with. We've um, we had a globe go to Morocco to a, an American diplomat and it couldn't have Western Sahara laws because that would offend um, Moroccan diplomats. So we, we have to be really careful um, how we how we go about things. At the same time, we have to make sure that uh, we're being realistic and truthful. We won't take um, uh, we won't take country names off um, off the globe. And if there's a the, the Taiwan Chinese Taipei situation is a is a disputed situation, so that that's easier. But things that are not disputed, we we make sure we we mark them properly. Mm. Thank you for taking us through that. I imagine even figuring out what the rules are and what the penalties are was probably a mass, massive task in and of itself. Um, but this in some ways is not a hugely new problem, kind of what's on the map and it not being fully accurate or needing to be updated. One of the pieces of the book that I think is quite fun, especially for our very sort of history nerdy audience, um, is there you have pieces in the book that kind of talk about the history of maps and globe making more broadly, not just the work that you and your team do, but kind of the intellectual gene genealogy that led up to it in a way. So asking about one of those sort of pieces, why did some early maps in the United States purposely have incorrect information, purposely have fake towns marked? Yeah, this was um, this was done to protect their copyright. So they, they realized that um, some companies were trying to um, get into the business without having spent the, um, the associated amounts of money in, in creating the, their, their mapping. So they were stealing stealing other people's maps. So um, some map makers uh, would add on fake towns and fake islands to to catch people out. But but it also goes to a different level as well with the um, with the globe that we are are huge globe we make, which we call the Churchill Globe, which is based on a globe that was made for Churchill and results in the war. They were each given one. All the cartographers on that added in their own um, hometowns. Um, so so there'll be there'll be a normal format of all towns or cities above 50,000 that are on a map, and then there'll suddenly be these little villages. So it's kind of... Um, and that's um, the beauty about what we do is we are a printed um, globe. We're a printed map. But globe making is no different to um, um, book publishing. We are we are actually a publisher. We publish our globes. 
And so um, we now print our globes and, and globe making used to be um, manuscript globes, just like manuscript, manuscript books, all, all handwritten. Um, and obviously with printing, they can be that much more accurate, but also you can make one or two more. Um, and so um, that um, being that we are printing what we're putting on a globe and being we do each one in a bespoke way, it allows us to um, add on detail, for instance, a small town or, or village that the customer would like, but also we, we add on um, illustrations, we add on people's life stories and family's life stories. We have amazing stories of people where they their great, great, great grandparents started in Eastern Europe and then moved to Western Europe and then moved to the States and then around the States. And it's a wonderful thing that kind of brings your um, family history on, on on a piece of artwork in your room. That is lovely. And um, thank you for sharing that. Um, if I might sort of ask a little bit about kind of the practical side of creating that sort of um, customization, uh, in the book, there's some beautiful evidence, obviously, of watercolors um, as part of the process. And it's discussed as well in terms of how that is possible. Because to be honest, before I read this, I had not really realized that you could use something like watercolors on a spherical object with any sort of precision. So in, you know, building off the previous question about those customizations, would you mind telling us a little bit about the practical side of the illustrations on a globe? Yeah, well, so so obviously the the cartography, the main names, the coastline is all is the printed element. Then all the color is added by hand. So there there are two main issues you have here. In any other um, sort of format, you don't um, you don't tend to rest um, your artwork on on the floor, as it were, or on something in order to create the other bits of the artwork. So on a, a flat canvas, you you never are in a situation where you have to, um, where that arises. Whereas with a globe, when you start, you put a one gore, um, that's fine. Once you go up to about nine gores, then suddenly you're having to rest the globe on um, on pieces that you've already put on the, on the globe already. So you've got to be really super careful. And that's obviously when you then are adding to covers onto a sphere. It is um, it is a skill that our our team have to spend some time getting used to. The my head painter now, when she did her first globe, and this was um, back in two, she's been here ten years, so two thousand thirteen. Um, she she painted her first globe, and there was an eighty centimeter. Now normally. These days, um, our team come in and they will start with a 12 centimeter and then they'll go up to 22 and then 36, 50, 65. They don't normally start with the larger ones. Well, Isis started with an 80 centimeter and she hadn't quite realized um, the effect of um, watercolors um, and the fact that when you had drips of what seemed like clear water running down a globe, um, it in fact contains tiny little bits of pigment. And so she had a she painted a wonderfully beautiful globe that had all, um, all watermarks um, running down it on, on either side. So it's something that we've obviously developed a really good process um, to make sure that doesn't happen. Partly down to every single painter having a rag in their um, a paper rag in their left hand, but equally being being careful with the, the amount of 
fluid um, that you're applying at any one stage. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of processes, now that you've given us an idea of kind of how many pieces there are and how delicate and precise they all must be, what role does yoga play in the studio's practice? So when you are making, and this is something I had to teach myself, I'm not the most patient person. And when I was making to begin with, I was struggling. Um, I picked me a good over a year and a half to perfect the, the process of applying a piece of paper to a sphere. And so in that time, I started taking up yoga because one of the things I learned is that when you're when you're putting a, a paper onto a sphere, you're having to wet it first, and it, it obviously becomes really fragile. And if you move quickly, you will rip it. And so it was a way of teaching myself uh, to um, to move with a little bit more precision and to move under under uh, in the way I suppose in the way yoga is performed. It just it has elements to it that, that really helped out. And we now we have a yoga teacher come in here once twice a week and teach um, teach the team um, or do yoga practice with the team. Because it's, it really is, what we're doing requires so much concentration. And you would be amazed if you came into the studio. There are 25 people in the studio, with the exception of the five downstairs in the workshop. Um, the painters and makers are silent. They're, they're wearing, usually wearing earphones, but they are they're silent. And even, even if they're not wearing earphones, they won't talk to each other because it requires so much focus to to do either one of the jobs that yeah, I mean, you just um, yoga is an, an ideal thing. I even also do um, follow follow Wim Hof with his um, cold water um, kind of medicine. So I have I have um, recent cold showers in the morning as well. Well, if it works, then it very much works. Um, in the book, you obviously talk about, as you've talked with us now, the complexity of building the globes, um, the the physical side, the uh, information as well. But interestingly, uh, there are some challenges that happen after the globe's already been built, after all of those complicated processes are successfully done, there are still some hurdles to navigate. What sorts of things happen then? So... Once we have, um, once we've made the globe and we're, well, it, it kind of is something that happens earlier, but sometimes um, it, it depends on our how our conversations happen with the customer. But the most fundamental question that we now always ensure that we ask when someone orders a large globe is how big are the doors that you're um, in, into the room where you plan on putting your globe? We've had situations in the past where people have had to winch a globe up the outside of a 20-story building. We had a Spanish customer who had a, a wonderful castle, and he wants the globe to go into a specific room where his study was, and he, he came over here and he saw the globe and he said, 80 centimeter, that's what I want, definitely that size. He, he phoned home and, and they, they um, someone said to, to him, the door wasn't big enough but he didn't believe him so he he got home and then he he called me up and he said peter the the 
door is 55 centimeters, but don't worry, we're going to knock down the wall um, and then we'll wait for your globe to arrive. We'll put the globe in the room and then we'll rebuild the wall. Um, so, um, yeah, there are, there are, there are things, um, that, that we have to kind of remind people of when they order. Well, and I imagine that as well, the kind of support that the globe rests in is um, bigger than the globe itself as well. So even if the door had been exactly 81 centimetres, that wouldn't have helped. Yeah, it's um, obviously with a lot of our um, stands, they are quite contemporary. So actually some of them um, are smaller, but yes, you're quite right with the traditional stands. They are usually bigger than um, 81 centimetres, bigger than the, the globe. And now... Um, and and that's the yeah the thing about a globe it's it's very easy to work out whether it's going to go through a space. Um, most furniture you can kind of you can you can put through smaller or what seem to be smaller spaces because the legs stick out a bit and you can kind of go round at an angle. But the globe it's eighty centimeters. That's it. No, absolutely. Um, you mentioned right at the beginning, of course, that there are beautiful antique globes still around. Um, they're also kind of some reasonable reasons why people wouldn't necessarily always want those as their sort of only option for a custom sort of globe. In the book, you detail some really fascinating globes, um, celestial globes and terrestrial globes throughout that you have found particularly interesting. Could you maybe introduce us to one or two globes that you have found most inspirational or most helpful as you've learned how to do all of this? Yeah, so at the beginning, when I was looking around, I was kind of looking at old globes for inspiration and I was lucky enough to get in contact with the National Maritime Museum over here and they have 400 globes in their collection. So I kind of merrily zoomed off there to go and have a look at them and I, I looked around the museum and I could only find four or five. So I got in touch with the curators and, and they um, told me, yeah, just like with any museum, most of their um, most of their stock is not on display. So I went to their vaults and I had a look at 400 globes um, in their vaults and they are extremely lucky to have a villain blau globe, which is probably one of the most beautiful globes ever made. Um, and it was made in the 1700s. It's, um, it just, the cartography is wonderful. The, the Everything about it, the fonts are amazing and it just was a very inspirational bloke for me along with Coronelli and Coronelli is an interesting one because we slightly got involved with this in that we um, we were asked by French Museum if we would help to make um, make a reproduction of one because they still have the original Coronelli plates from 1683 so I went over to Paris and we um, did the old school in Taglio printing um, using these plates, which is an amazing process to watch. Um, and Coronelli's um, globes, he, he made quite a few of them. A, a lot of them are in Italy and in, in Europe and a few in museums over here. But there was a, there's a great story, actually. The book isn't quite long enough, the story. The, uh, there, there was a big argument between um, King Louis from France and Coronelli. And so in the end, two different sets of um, copper plates were made. And these are, the detail on these plates is phenomenal. They must have taken 
um, months and months to do each one because it's just the detail is so fine. It's, it's essentially um, engraving um, on a copper plate, but it's it's just uh, wonderful detail. So those are the two um, that I really got the most inspiration out of, and and we we kind of use some of their methodology or um, their certainly the appearance of what and what methodology might be of painting our, our globes. I think it's that for me was one of the most important things that I I wanted to create an accurate globe and I wanted to create a robust globe, but I also wanted to create a beautiful globe. And, and that's what I'd just been missing from globe making for decades and decades. Yeah, that sounds like a really simple combination, um, but obviously very difficult to find if you've got antique ones that are beautiful, but not robust, modern ones that are robust, but not beautiful. Yeah. Um, Thinking back then on kind of this whole process, um, obviously writing the book, I imagine, was something of a reflective exercise. Um, and obviously the years of developing all of this. If you look at that overall, what has perhaps been one of the most frustrating skills to learn? But then maybe if you could give us as a final point, um, something particularly kind of awe-inspiring or cool, you know, I still can't believe I can do that type thing. I mean, I had a... a think about this and I, I kind of think it, it's really the same thing but but while you mentioned the book it, it's quite a funny one um, with the whole book because I don't I don't write diaries um, I, I assume when most people are writing a book they they do some sort of research um, but my my research was uh, basically uh, my brain that was I had to <laughs> I had to rem- remember everything as it happened because I, I literally hadn't written it down, uh, which is um, very silly of me, but I, it's because I never really expected any of it to happen. But no, the most frustrating skill was without doubt um, learning how to um, gore a globe, learning how to put the, the pieces of paper um, onto, onto spherical form. That That is incredibly frustrating. And the only reason I think a, a lot of our team who come in now um, persevere is because they see other members of the team who are able to do it. But the first the first 50 days you're doing it, you're just ripping paper over and over again. And you're thinking, how on earth is this possible? So that without shadow of doubt is by far the most frustrating. But um, I said, and, and again, the most awe-inspiring part of making globe um, is pushing on that last panel um, and then you you finally change this sphere kind of into your own little world and that's um, that's the point where you finish and you kind of step back every time it's not um, it's not a one-off time because this you can't just come into work every day and be like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna knock out um, this globe today. You can't do that. It's very much a skill that you have to have your A game on you every time you do it. So um, it's definitely the fact that we now have the six best six best globe makers in the world in my studio is for me by far and away the most awe-inspiring thing I can imagine when when I set out to do this, there was 
no one on our planet who could teach me how to do it. Literally, there are seven to eight billion people on this planet, but no one could teach me how to do the project I was setting myself up to do. Fine, some people can do it in a ham-fisted way or a not, um, not very skillful way, but no one has been doing it um, to a high level for certainly since the 1930s, if not um, before. Um, and so that, for me, I suppose, I'm, I'm often asked, do, do, I must be really proud of this. And do I think it's amazing? And I, I don't, but actually when I think about that one statistic, that kind of makes um, makes it sound, um, to use a very poor word, very cool. No, absolutely. And I think just that one answer um, really speaks to the whole title of the book, which is a reminder to our listeners, is The Globe Makers, The Curious Story of an Ancient Craft, right? That answer, even by itself, does um, kind of speaks to all of those words so well. So thank you so much, Peter, for being with us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much.